Good morning, church. It is great to see if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. And as our 7 to 10 year olds are exiting, we are so thankful to God for our uh, workers who labor to give them uh, the gospel, to teach them regularly. And uh, so I'm so glad they get to worship with us and also get age appropriate teaching. So uh, while uh, you are uh, staying in here, we do encourage you to dive in here to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we've been here for a little bit in a basically a series within a series, and that is, what is gospel culture? What is gospel culture? And uh, we're praying that God shapes in us as a people a gospel culture. So I want to read the passage, I want to pray, and we're going to dive right in. So I'm going to start in verse 9, but the focus of the sermon today is our verses 12 through 15. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, when you're there, say, I'm there. Amen. Amen. Verse 9 of chapter 12 in the book of Romans. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent or boil in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's the focus of this week. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let's pray. Father, I ask in this moment, I ask that you would protect us from seeing these words as more about what we are supposed to do for you rather than seeing them as what you have promised to accomplish in us. Lord, it is so opposite of my heart and I know many of us, when we see things to do, it feels like it's on our shoulders and I ask for a fresh wind of grace that we would be so aware that these commands are only given because you have promised to supply us with everything we need to make them happen. And as they happen, our joy increases. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending your Son and accomplishing on the cross what we could not accomplish in promising to supply us with everything we need for our joy and your glory. So we just ask it. We ask that we would be so much more aware of what you have done for us than what we must walk to do in one sense for you. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for loving us and being near to us. Your presence is our hope right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So back in 2017, um, we had a Loving the City summer camp with the church. And it's something that we did for many years, still do. Um, And this Loving the City summer camp has had at its aim and its theme this idea. It was life God-scripted. That was the theme. It meant, it meant that our life was not unscripted. Our life is actually scripted by God. He's writing a story with our lives. And the whole aim of that theme was to gather these kids around just to remind them that God is writing a special story in their hearts and in their lives. So in 2017, like many of the other years before and after, we uh, got to spend time with kids from the neighborhood and kids from Treasuring Christ Church, and we just all, one big group, sought to understand that God is writing a story in our lives. Now, one of the major projects that we did was a quilt. This quilt was meant to be comprised of each individual camper taking this little patch and writing or drawing on that little patch something that they learned from the week of camp, something that reminded them that God was writing a story with their lives. And so this is the quilt. It's hanging up in our in the brick house just down the street at 3101 Rock Quarry Road on our church property. And this quilt is this patchwork of all of these individual stories of how God is writing a story in our lives, all sewn together to create this one theme that our life is not unscripted, our life is God scripted. Now this quilt in some sense, is a metaphor or an image of what Paul is seeking to do in Romans 12. So just let's just take this image and let's just let it sit here for a second and let's let it help us understand what Paul is doing as we walk through Romans chapter 12. We've said that in Romans chapter 12, God is creating in the church a gospel culture. He's making us into something new so that We don't reflect any other culture as much as we reflect the fact that God has changed us from the inside out. And what does that culture look like? Well, we talked about it. We talked about that a gospel culture is shaped by grace. A gospel culture is humble. That means we consider others' uh, needs greater than our own needs. We love others. A gospel culture is honest. It's not just honest with other people, but it's honest about ourselves. But in all of it, this gospel culture is a culture where grace is shaping us to be a loving people. A loving people. And like this quilt, what makes this quilt special is that the individual patches are different. They're communicating different stories. And with the difference, each patch unique, special. So too is the gospel culture that we celebrate. Each of us different. We are a diverse people, but not just diverse in our culture, in our ethnicity, in maybe our languages or how we grew up or where we grew up. We're diverse also in the giftings that God has given us. Romans chapter 12 at the very beginning tells us that we are all gifted if we are in Christ, that his Holy Spirit has given us gifts, and those gifts are different, but different by design. 
so that we wouldn't have to crave to be like someone else, but that we could be the person that God has made us to be. We have our own patch. We have our own story. It's different, and it's beautiful. But it's only minimally beautiful compared to how that different, beautiful, individual story is interconnected with a story bigger than itself. A story that's sewn together in the patches and in the giftings and in the lives of everybody in his church. In our local church. We are interconnected and interconnected by design. We necessarily need one another. This quilt will not be a quilt without multiple patches coming together and being sewn together in love. The quilt by design, is necessarily interconnected with different patches communicating one major story. And friends, like we talked about, like Romans 12 has talked about, like Pastor Ron Jure talked about last week and did a wonderful job, this interconnectivity is, is because we're one body. He's addressing a local church in Rome, and he's saying, hey, local church, you are one body. And you necessarily need each other. You are interconnected. Although diverse, one body. What that means with our interconnectivity is that the church is not a club. It is a body. And that means when part of the body remains unused, i.e. people in the church not using the gifts that God has given them or believing the lie that they're not gifted at all. When they remain unused, what happens? What happens when things are unused is paralysis. When part of the body is not used, that part of the body is acting paralyzed. If my leg just tells me, hey, I don't want to work today, which I think some of you might feel sometimes, your body wants to revolt and uh, it hurts, But if on a regular basis my leg just tells me I don't want to work today and I walk up here and I just fall down, that's a problem. I'm created that all of my parts work together. We don't just opt out. And so, as with this patch, we are, this quilt, we are interconnected. That affects the whole body when some of us just choose to remain unused. It's body paralysis. Or if some seek to remove themselves, it's not like leaving a YMCA membership. As Pastor Ranjur told us, it's like amputation. It's a sense of cutting off. It's a sense of pain. There's a connectedness that Paul is pressing into the local church. Just like if you rip one of these patches out, you have what's called a hole. And you feel it. It's a little draftier late at night when it's supposed to keep you warm. Paul is pressing and pressing that we and all of our diversity are interconnected as a people. What are we connected with? It's the passage I read today, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be genuine. The threads, the fabric that connects us all in our beautiful diversity into one patchwork quilt is the love of God for us. It is love. 
And what, are you, what you're tempted to realize, and that's actually what Paul is doing. He's pressing, saying our love for one another, for the outside world, it must be a genuine love. He's talking about our horizontal love. But make no mistake, Romans 12 is built on the back of Romans 1 through 11, which means the primary stitching of this quilt is not my love for you, but God's love for us. He is the fabric. He is what unites this quilt, this gospel culture together. And only my love for you is actually just going over the very stitching that he has sewn into me. It's not creating new paths. It's mirroring his love towards me. I know it feels like, okay, Cordell, you're really belaboring this issue. I got it. But I want you to make sure that we walk away with this. It is an up hill battle in America that we are a one people rather than a bunch of individuals living our own life and our decisions don't affect anybody. Paul is laboring to say, you're a body, you're a people, and I'm forming something so new, so precious that it just shocks the world. Don't pull away from each other, press in. Press in and let's together, with the love of God for us, go back over the same stitching he stitched in our lives and give it away to one another into a lost world. In so doing, we're a healthy patchwork that communicates the love of God. So dear friends, love characterizes a gospel culture because love created a gospel culture. When Paul is giving us all these commands, it is because he has already done this work to us and promised it to do, a, to do it in us and through us. Love characterizes a gospel culture because love created a gospel culture. That's 1 John 4.19. We love because he first, what? Loved us. So every ounce of love towards one another and towards the outside world is communicating, I've been loved. Loved ones, love. Loved ones, love. So now, Romans chapter 12. We're here, we're running through. Let's just remember, this gospel culture, and it's just a list, I'm going to run through it. We've had multiple sermons that get us to this point. Gospel culture is shaped by grace, it's humble, it's honest, it's diverse, it's interconnected, it is loving, it is honoring. Remember what I said, it's like a rehearsal dinner every single week. It's, it's being able to look around at what you love about people and talking about the grace of God just like J.D. did for us earlier today. And as Pastor Ron Jure led us through last week, this gospel culture is also servant-hearted. Right? You see that in verse 11. Don't be slothful and zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. It's passionately, not wishy-washy, servant-hearted. That's one of my greatest prayers for my kids is that I don't want lukewarmness. Oh, God, give us a red-hot passion for Jesus. Keep us from being halfway, one foot in and one foot out. God, please make us all in for Jesus. Boiling in the spirit. That's that word fervent. Zeontes. It just sounds fun to say. 
serve the Lord. And as Pastor Ranjur shared with us last week, a gospel culture is generous. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're just characterized by generosity. This is what God has done for us and is doing in us. You just get it. He's been generous to us, therefore we can be generous to others. You can flip every single one of those. Humble. He left glory. He came to us. He did not count himself equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he gave himself over, enduring to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was humble that we could be humble. Every one of these has something that God has done for us so that we might be able to live for him. So today, we've got a few more characteristics of a gospel culture. And we're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to begin in verse 12. A gospel culture is a joyful culture. Now, I was a music major in college, believe it or not. I, I, had, I was a double major. I did music and religion. The music part was me running away from Jesus. So I felt like God was calling me into the ministry, and I said, okay, I'll never be a missionary, and I'll never be a preacher, but I could sing okay, and so I'll just do music. So literally changed my major six times my freshman year. I do not recommend that, students. Bad idea. And, um, but I got through school, thankfully. And, but I had so many credits in music that I became a music major alongside a religion major. So, and I had almost enough for a business minor because I just really loved choosing different majors all the time. So in music, you would sit in theory class and you would analyze classical pieces of music which is not my favorite thing to do, okay? You knew I was in the deep end of this degree to be able to choose music theory. So I'm sitting in music, and basically what you do is you listen to classical music, and you know something's called recapitulation in music. Here's what happens. You've got a musical melody line that the author, composer has written in, and then it just goes on and all of a sudden, you find that musical melody line that is now repeated later in the song, but then it's deepened and broadened and expanded with other lines of melody that complement it, but it's still there's the same melody line. Later on in the song, it actually re-enters again, the same general melody line, and it goes deeper and wider and broader, and this is how we're preaching Romans 12. It's recapitulation. Pastor Ron Jour deepened and widened me last week as he looked back at Romans 9 and 10. I'm deepening and widening a little bit as we go back to Romans 12. And honestly, this is how you read the Bible. The Old Testament is crafted this way. It's themes that then repeat after themes that then repeat after themes, deepening and widening. And this is what you do right here. You just don't learn one lesson with one take. You've got to dive in over and over. So that's what we're doing. Joyful culture. The gospel culture is a joyful culture and it begins in Romans 12 12 rejoice in hope rejoice in hope joy what's joy when you get to do something you love right like eat or watch sports college football start I really enjoyed that you play games with each other joy or when you're at a place that you love, right? Like coming home after a long day of work, there's just a sense of, yes, I'm glad to be home. Or geography, like, oh, I've got, I get to go to the beach, or I get to go to the mountains, or I get to go visit family, or something like that. There's joy. You get that. When you get to be with someone you love. So you do something you love, you go to a place you love, you get to be with someone you love, a spouse or a friend, kids. Or you get to watch somebody else enjoy something that you really love them, and so all of a sudden you really enjoy them loving and enjoying things. Joy. I, you know what it is. 
Whether you have it now or not, you have tasted it, and our whole lives are crafted for it. We long for joy. Every pursuit we have is a joy, is a pursuit for joy. You just think about it. Why do you work? Why do you labor? Why do you make money? Why did you get married? Why do you have family? Why are you here at church? There's a joy factor. I need, I want joy, sense of satisfaction, gladness of heart. Paul here commands it. And I just want to confess to you, it's one of the things I feel like personally I struggle with in the Christian walk the most. Where's my joy? Why do I get frustrated at home? Why do I get overwhelmed with work? Why do I get complainy sometimes? Where'd the joy go? But Paul here commands it. And when he does that, it means that our God supplies it. He will never command that which he doesn't supply. So this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a pipe dream for the select few. He's addressing the church at Rome, brand new. Rejoice. Rejoice. So then why don't we have it? I mean, part of my prayers regularly is that, God, would you please grant me joy that is internal and visible? Because, honestly, the church is meant to be a happy people. That doesn't mean a suffering-less people, but it means that we're meant to be a happy people. Even in the midst of pain, we're meant to be looked at and like, there's a unique sense of gladness of heart by the people of God. That's why I even prayed this week, Father, revive my heart, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Psalm 51. God, do it in us. But what takes away our joy? What takes away our joy? Well, of course, one of the greatest obstacles to our joy is sin, right? Romans 1 calls it, you love the creation more than the creator. We, we just get it. Whether it's the complaining spirit, whether it's thanklessness, whether it's looking at circumstances and fearing future outcomes, whether it's craving approval, longing so much for comfort that you neglect all sense of responsibility, whether it's going after things, obviously, in the present that God has forbidden, it's sin. Breaking God's commands, loving things more than people, loving people more than God, it's sin. Sin is not honestly hard to understand. Why do I bring it up here? Because it's a barrier to our joy. It drains joy from our soul. And sin, although many things, it is a fascination with the present that forgets the future. Sin is a craving for immediate gratification that forgets the future faithfulness of God. Tara Lee Cobble, one who works with what's called the Bible recap, she has this quote. Anytime we choose sin, 
we fail to consider the future. Sin occurs when we live so much in the present, we forget about the eternal kingdom. Sin is short-sighted. It's short-sighted. The yelling that happens at home, short-sighted. Holding on to the hurt, short-sighted. Bitterness, short-sighted. Lust, objectifying people or things, short-sighted. Like all idolatry, it will not deliver. It's short-sighted. It's not looking towards the consequence. It's looking towards the immediate gratification. Sin is short-sighted. It doesn't look far enough ahead. It doesn't look to the horrible consequences, the breaking of trust, the dissolving of relationships, the internal pain, the physical danger, the destructive nature of sin. Sin is short-sighted. That's why Paul says, in hope rejoice. Hope is future. He's wanting to get our brains and our eyes that are so like right here in our lives and lift up the head to look to what God has promised to do for us in the future. I'll always be with you. I'm working all the hard things out for your good. Sin doesn't get the final word. I'm always accomplishing my purposes. I'm always at work for you. When we look at that, sin begins to diminish. Jesus gets better. Joy bubbles up in the heart. When he says in hope, rejoice it's because he wants us to look beyond the here and now for me a helpful grid for joy has been remember past present and future past present future God you have been faithful to me in the past your word tells me so and my own story tells me so you've been faithful despite all my mess you've been faithful past, present, and God, I believe right now that you're here and that you are working for me and you are alive and at work within me. And therefore, I trust you that you will continue to work. My future is categorized by grace. My future is about the promise that you will always work for me and accomplish your purposes. Past present, future, and out of that soil comes joy. It's kind of like the weekend, and I'm not speaking of the musical group. You work hard on a Friday, you want to give up, right? Friday's some of the hardest work. If you have a traditional work week, kind of Monday to Friday, you're looking forward to what? The weekend, to work being over. And so sometimes that's a motivator for you to keep going on Friday because you know Saturday's coming or at least Friday night or some, you know, some sense that work will stop and therefore I can keep going. It's the same thing with looking forward to bed. Do I get an amen? How many times after a really long day you just can't wait to get to bed and then you finally, you lay down. Everything is done and you just lay in that bed, and there's been times when I just am like, yeah, the smile hits, you know, it's just like, glad to be here. I don't remember many thoughts after the smile, because I probably just pass out, but you're just thankful, you're just thankful. What is that? Well, it's, 
I'm working hard in my day because I know that the bed is coming. It's, ha- it's going to happen. I'm going to be able to lay down and sleep. This is the same way. Paul is saying you can find joy in the here and now because you know that your God is trustworthy. Not just when he brings in the new heavens and the new earth, but 30 seconds from now, 5 minutes from now, 10 minutes from now, 5 hours from now, 3 days from now, 10 weeks from now, months and years from now, he is faithful. And you can trust him. That's the soil out of which he tells us a joyful heart grows. And so I hope that you begin to see the interconnectivity here. Rejoice in hope is then followed by what does take away our joy? We would all quickly say it's how hard this life is is what takes away our joy, right? And so that makes a lot of sense then why he says in trial, be patient. In affliction, endure. It's this sense that he's like a real person. Isn't that comforting? It's a real person who followed a real God who says rejoice in hope. This isn't like optional. Like you can be joyful, but what's going to stand in your way are the trials that are coming your way. And so I'm going to tell you, this whole trial thing is going to require your endurance. Even though every fiber of your being wants to run away. The word there for patient is the word to remain under, remain in the affliction. It's this sense that you don't run away from, but you actually stay in, you're committed to, you cling to, you endure with God in the trial. So that's why Paul goes where he goes. The affliction, it's not light, it's heavy, it's hard. If anybody knows suffering, it's Paul. We're not talking about you stubbed your toe, we're talking about deep emotional trauma. And yet, he is saying, church, a gospel culture is not only described and characterized by joy, but it's characterized by endurance. That even though you've experienced things that are so horrible... He says, I'll be with you. You'll be able to remain. You're not going to be blown over. It's like me exercising yesterday. I was running, and uh, I was on a treadmill because it was a little cooler inside than it was outside. And I was running, and about 10 minutes in, I'm like, I don't think I want to keep going. I was planning on running for 20, you know, and I had all these grand ambitions for, you know, getting to 20 minutes. Well, on this treadmill... You know, I, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this thing that's going to create maximum impact, right? Which means it elevates. So when you run, you know, you're running at a certain pace, and then all of a sudden that dude just starts sprinting up like that. And I'm like, okay, I'm running up a hill now. And then I'm just like 10 minutes in, I'm like, I don't want to keep going. And I'm literally now rehearsing these verses because I see the interconnectivity. The interconnectivity is I don't have any joy right now in this moment. I don't want to keep going. I do not want to endure. So what did I do? I stopped and I said, oh God, help me. What did I just do? I prayed. Where does Paul go right after he encourages us to endure? He says, pray. In prayer, 
be devoted, be committed. These are kind of links in a chain that I believe, not grammatically, but experientially, Paul is saying the key to you having joy, even in the midst of your suffering and you continuing to go, is where are you going for the help in the midst of the trial? Sadly, I confess, I've gone too many times to my own energies. I've gone to my wife as a crutch. I've gone to some of you just to hope that you could give me an encouraging word before I will stop and dive deep into the presence of God and trust that he will supply me. And so, dear friends, how do we endure? How do we endure? It is through our devotion to prayer. It's being with God. I don't, I don't know much about wells. I didn't grow up on, a, on well water. I grew up on, you know, city water or whatnot. But if you have a well, there are times that you have drought. And when drought happens, the water table goes down and your well goes dry. And so the question is, how do you get water in a dry well? Well, the answer is, in most situations, you dig deeper to get down to the, the groundwater aquifer. Yeah, I did read that. I have no clue what I'm talking about now. And so you, you go down deep into the groundwater, and then you lower the pump. So there's a pump that you need to get into the water that then would shoot the water back up into the well so that the well is full. This is exactly what Paul is prescribing for us right here. Be joyful in hope. Oh, wait. I ain't got no joy. The trial has come. It is hard. I want to give up. So I dive deeper into the presence of God through prayer. Because I know he's there. And I know and I believe that the supply is there as well. And so I dig deep. I spend time. I wrestle with God like Jacob wrestled with God. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And I'm down there and then down there what happens is the pump gets deeper and the water begins to boil up and my endurance begins to increase and the joy finally begins to bubble up because I now believe my God is not only here but he is securing a future for me forever. It is connected. A gospel culture is a joyful culture. Oh God, my prayer has been God make us a happy people. A glad-hearted people that endure and don't quit so easily. Because a gospel culture is not only an enduring culture, but it's a prayerful culture. It's a culture characterized by communion with God day by day by day. Listen to these sweet words. When you're in prayer, what, what can you consider? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 says this. Consider him, Jesus, who endured, same word that's used in Romans 12, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our Savior endured the cross so that when we get weary and faint-hearted, we don't have to give up. He made it through. Therefore, we can trust him to help us make it through. That's the logic of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. So consider, that's prayer, 
Oh God, help I set my mind on you. Sometimes it's called mindfulness today. My little watch has mindfulness app, and I hit it sometimes just to see what in the world it's going to tell me to do. And it says, focus on one thing for one minute. I do think that there's some help there. Just what are you going to focus on? I think Hebrews 12.3 is a good thing to focus on for one minute. My Savior endured for me. My Savior loved me so much, he experienced Calvary for me. And he made it through. He made it through. So that when I get weary and faint-hearted, I can know he'll help me make it through. That's prayer. God help me make it through. So hopefully you begin to see gospel culture. It is an enduring culture. It does not give up. It does not seek to take the easy way out. That's the very temptation that the devil gave to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. The temptation is, and he had the authority to do it, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow and worship me right now. What's that translate into? I'll give you everything if you skip the cross. I'll give you everything if you skip the suffering. Walking through the suffering, not choosing it, not going out and being a masochist, but suffering is going to come. So when the suffering comes, choosing not to just run away from it, but to choose to cling to Jesus in it, that's where the lessons are learned. What is endurance? It's saying in the midst of that trial, I'm not just going to run away, I'm going to choose to love God and love my neighbor. That's endurance. I'm going to love God and love my neighbor. God, make in us an enduring heart. Make us an enduring people that endure through the trial, endure with one another, and that happens through prayer. The gospel culture is a prayerful culture. And so, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, tells us, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it. With thanksgiving. This is what we as a people are to be characterized by. We are a prayerful people. Continuing in prayer. Watchful in prayer. Thankful in prayer. But I just, I've got to press in on this because I know my own heart. (laughs) So far, Cordell, you've told me, be joyful. Stop giving up so quickly and pray more. And what? We just get overwhelmed by our failures sometimes. Every one of us would be like, okay, I've fallen short in all those categories. Thanks for the pep talk. But what if, what if as I say the gospel culture is a prayerful culture, it's less about the obligation and more about the opportunity? Here's what I mean. Prayer is like eating, and I like to eat. Okay, prayer is like eating. When I look at you and I say something like, hey, you need to eat. That never crosses your mind that I am really burdening you down with a command. You're like, yeah, no, that makes sense, right? Like, okay, my body needs it. Um, 
It's really fun to eat good food, so taste is really good, and many times eating is with others, and so that's kind of fun too. So it's like, it's an opportunity, it's an invitation. Prayer is like eating. But what happens when you don't eat? Your body communicates with you, right? I would venture to say in a room this size with this many people, somebody, while I've been preaching, has had their stomach growl. Because we're getting really close to when it's time to eat lunch. And now that I mentioned it, I've lost you all. But your stomach growls. What is that? It's your body telling you that you are missing something that you need. Prayer is like eating. When our dissatisfied souls growl, when our anxious hearts and discontentment or temptation to give up rise up, they're just hunger pains. They're hunger pains of the human soul. It's the growl of the heart saying, I need spiritual food. That is, I need time with Jesus. Oh, that God would awaken us that when we get complaining and thankless, when we get despairing or discouraged, it's like your stomach growling saying, you just need time with the one who promises to satisfy your needs. It's a hunger pain. And by diving into time with him in prayer, by being continually steadfast in prayer, as this passage says, be devoted in prayer. We tap into the life-giving waters that Jesus promises. And his commands stop being burdens and we begin to see he's going to supply it. We actually get hope. Joy is possible. Endurance is possible. Devotion is possible. It's not a pipe dream. Psalm 1611, in your presence is, does anybody know how to finish that? Fullness of joy. That's Romans 12. In your presence is fullness of joy. And so with the last one, I give you this. The gospel culture is not only a culture of joy, a culture of endurance, a culture of prayer, but it's a culture of peacemaking. And the good news is we get like a quarter of this sermon or just a little bit of this sermon and two more weeks after it on this. So, But the rest of Romans chapter 12 is could fall under the banner of the gospel culture is a peacemaking culture it's a culture that pursues peace and that's why he says here look at Romans 12 13 and 14 contribute to the needs of the saints seek I want you to mark that word seek seek to show hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them why did I tell you to circle seek you know why because it's the exact same word in Greek used to translate the word persecute. And you're like, huh? So are you telling me that we should persecute others and show them hospitality? Nope, that's not right. What's it mean? It means that God has us to be known by a different type of seeking. So, one of the greatest trials that you could ever experience is when you feel emotionally, physically attacked. It's deep, it's painful. 
That's what persecution is. It's someone who is seeking to trap you, attack you, do you harm. And that's how Paul is using it. There's two types of seeking. One person in verse 14 is seeking to do you harm. The gospel culture that God is producing in us is where we're seeking to do others good. We're known as a people for a different type of seeking. When we look at strangers, as Pastor Runger so wonderfully showed us, that hospitality is a hospitality to, to strangers. We're also seeking to be known as a people who blesses the very people that hurt us. We're seeking their good rather than seeking their harm. I just saw it again in the news this week. You've heard it so many times. When someone hurts somebody else in a very tragic, horrible, despicable, disgusting, gross kind of way, a cop was murdered, you see and read of rape, you see and read of all kinds of domestic abuse, we all know that there's things that hurt us and it's painful and it's difficult, but here's what I saw in the news this week, someone was shot and killed, a family member testifies and they say, I can never forgive that person. And I know what that means. And in one sense, I embrace that, them because it's like they're just trying to put words on the fact that this hurt me so deep, I don't know what to do about it. But a Christian doesn't talk that way. A Christian doesn't talk that way. A Christian is known for a different type of seeking. It's a different type of response. It blesses rather than curses. Cursing in the Old Testament was equivalent to I want you dead. The blessing in the Old Testament and here when Paul uses it is, I want you alive. And I want you to experience the only fullness of life that is possible and that's in Jesus. I want to bless you. It's when bitterness flips to brokenness. I want good for you. A peacemaking culture is characterized by kindness, not hatefulness. And so Paul is pressing into us that a peacemaking culture begins with a different type of seeking. We want good for the stranger. We even want good for the one who has hurt us. That's what blessing means. Make no mistake about it. Kindness is not enabling hurt. Kindness is not refusing to pursue justice at a legal level when a crime has been committed. Kindness is saying, it's not my job to punish as an individual. God has created himself, the government, the church, to be the advocates, not us as individuals, to exact the punishment. Now, obviously, that's different between a parent and a child. God has given us the authority to give commands to children and to discipline them for their disobedience. But not me to you. God has instituted groups to enact punishment so that we don't take revenge. We should not trust ourselves. We are called to bless. 
and do not curse. Blessing is forgiveness. It's not treating the bad thing as easy or light. It's not saying, oh, you really didn't hurt me. No, be honest. That hurt me deeply. But it's where we can say, I've been hurt. I've been forgiven. Therefore, I can forgive. Peacemaking culture is characterized by kindness. Why does Paul institute this here? And why does he spend more ink on this peacemaking culture than he does even some of these other things? Duke University did a study. I got this from a podcast called uh, Therapy and Theology. A uh, licensed uh, therapist named Jim Kress said this. Duke University did a study that bitterness and forgiveness is the number one killer in America. Bitterness and unforgiveness is the number one killer in America. So then... Why do we do it? Because neurochemically, it feels good to get back at somebody. It feels good. It's taking back the power of which they exercised over you. And just like any drug, it feels good immediately. But just like any drug, it destroys. It damages us. When we hold on to bitterness. And Paul says, no, the persecution is horrible. He rejects it. He says that it, he calls it despicable in so many other places. But here when he addresses the church, we are meant to be known for a different type of pursuit. A pursuit of forgiveness and blessing. Not cursing. I do believe that's why MLK Jr. had it right in his approach to the civil rights movement over against Stokely Carmichael or Malcolm X, which was nonviolence. He was right to pursue justice, but to do it in a nonviolent way. I do believe that is mirroring an advocacy of what Jesus is advocating for us. The gospel culture is a blessing culture. We must be a people who understand this, and let's just say it. I have been hurt. The pain is deep. Oh God, I need you. We have to say, I have been forgiven. My sin is great. Your love is greater. I can forgive. Because I've been forgiven much. That's what Paul is advocating for. Blessing is, I have been hurt. This is horrible. God, come and invade my hurt. I need you here. And at the same time, it is saying, I have been forgiven much. My sin is great. Your grace is greater. And therefore, I can forgive. Which is, not just a one-time declaration. But if you've experienced real trauma, which comes back to your mind over and over at unpredictable times and it hurts all the time, it feels like, it's choosing at each one of those moments to rehearse those three things. I have been hurt. 
the hurt is deep. God, comfort me. I am a sinner. My sin is great. I have been forgiven. I can forgive because your grace is greater than my sin. Bless and do not curse. And when that happens, you'll be able to not want bad for others, but you'll begin to rejoice with others. And you'll be able to weep with others. Just as the passage says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. All of the jealousy and comparison drains away. You realize you have been shaped by grace and you enjoy the joys of others. And when people are crying, because you know them, you've heard their story, weeping with other people comes in the context of relationship. It's that interconnectivity of the church. We weep with them. And how do we do that? It's because we know this. Our Savior rejoices over us. Zephaniah 3, 17. He rejoices over us with loud singing. And you know what? Our Savior joins us in our sorrows. It says in the Psalms that he catches every one of our tears in a bottle. That's how close he is when we are weeping. And so because Jesus is rejoicing over us, and is weeping with us, we too can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep.